0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Deathbed Confessions, and I've saved the most interesting story in this series for last. It's a case where, just when you think the story couldn't get any stranger, you find yet another odd and unbelievable detail. In 1967, a double murder shocked a small town in Virginia. A suspect was quickly rounded up, but the case wasn't truly resolved until decades later, when a chance encounter led to a series of events that would ultimately bring about a deathbed confession. Come along and listen to this one-of-a-kind true crime case in our final chapter of Deathbed Confessions. Staunton, Virginia, was the epitome of small-town America in the 1960s. Located in the heart of the Commonwealth of Virginia's beautiful Shenandoah Valley, some of Staunton's now 23,000 residents are descendants of the first settlers to the area. As in many small towns in America, Staunton just feels like home to those born and raised here. Many remain, working and raising their own families where they grew up. Some leave for college, jobs, or marriage, but find themselves returning to their hometown that feels safe and familiar. In fact, according to recent crime statistics, Staunton, Virginia is rated safer than almost half of all U.S. cities in the United States. Residents of Staunton then were understandably shocked when a double homicide occurred in their town on a warm spring evening in 1967. The scene of the crime made the shocking discovery even more jarring, a locally owned and operated ice cream store that was a popular destination for families. Larry Robertson stopped at High's Ice Cream late on April 11th. The shop was located in a small shopping center in the middle of town on North Augusta Street. It was a Tuesday evening, and the days had just begun to grow warm in the lead-up to the hotter summer months in this part of the country. The ice cream shop always grew busier beginning in late spring, and the owners decided to keep the doors open later in the evening. This evening was the first of the extended hours, with highs staying open to serve customers until 10.45 p.m. Robertson decided to make a quick stop at the store to purchase a carton of milk. He entered the store just before closing time. He found the doors unlocked and the lights still on, but as he stepped inside, he found the place empty. He called out to make his presence known, but no one came out to serve him. He stepped past the counter and peered into the back room of the ice cream shop. There he found a scene that would rattle him so thoroughly that later that evening he would be transported to King's daughter's hospital to be treated for shock. In a small back room that served as the shop storeroom and office, there was a bloody scene. Lying on the floor in a pool of blood lay two young women. One was lying face down, and the second woman lying face up across the legs of the first. Great quantities of blood had pooled on the floor and around the victims. It appeared that they had both been shot in the head. Robertson quickly grabbed a phone and, with shaking hands, dialed the police. When the first officers arrived, they found the witness sitting in his car in the parking lot, sobbing. The victims were soon identified as 19-year-old Constance Connie Smoots-Hevner and 20-year-old Carolyn Hevner-Perry. Connie and Carolyn, sisters-in-law, both worked at the ice cream shop. The shop was owned and operated by Carolyn's family. Her mother, Elizabeth, managed the store. Connie had married Carolyn's brother, Larry, almost two years earlier soon after graduating from Fort Defiance High School. Connie had been a cheerleader, a member of her high school photography club, and had served as director of her junior class play. After marrying Larry, Connie began working at the family ice cream shop. Connie was very close to her twin brother, Carol. Carolyn's father had passed away five years earlier, and her mother had recently remarried. Carolyn was one of eight children in the Perry family and the eldest daughter. She had graduated from Wilson Memorial High School in 1964 and married Danny Lee Perry. The couple had a two-year-old daughter, Kim. Both women were unresponsive when the ambulance arrived. Connie died soon after being shot and was pronounced dead on arrival at King's Daughter's Hospital. Carolyn clung to life for a few hours before succumbing to her injuries at the University of Virginia Hospital. Both Connie's father, Virgil, and her husband, Larry, worked as long-haul truck drivers. They were tracked down, Larry near Boston and Virgil Smoots in North Carolina, and told the terrible news. They quickly boarded flights and returned home. Larry Hevner reeled from the news that both his wife and sister were dead at the hands of an unknown assailant. Sergeants David Davy Bocock and Floyd Jarvis of the Staunton Police Department's Criminal Investigations Unit were assigned to the double homicide case. They surveyed the crime scene. Both women had been shot at close range with a 25 caliber weapon. The gun was not found at the scene. A prepared deposit of the ice cream shop's earnings for the day was found sitting out in the back room near the bodies. However, upon closer examination, it was determined that cash in the amount of $138 was missing from the total. Sergeant Bocock, as it happens, was on patrol in the area where High's Ice Cream was located that evening and had driven past it on his rounds. He most likely had driven past just minutes before the shooting occurred. He would recall seeing a man inside a nearby phone booth that night. As the police began to gather in the shopping center parking lot, the man Bocock had seen in the phone booth earlier now stood watching more police vehicles arrive. A group of curious onlookers had begun to gather. Bocock approached the man to question him about anything he might have observed that evening. The man's name was William Gus Thomas. He told the officer that he was employed as an English teacher at Buffalo Gap High School in nearby Swope. Thomas was 24 years old and married. His wife Sally was also a teacher. She taught at Beverly Manor Elementary School. Thomas told Bocock he'd just moved into a new home on Weston Drive and the phone had not yet been connected. He'd come to the Terry Court Shopping Center to use the payphone to place a call to his father that evening. The officers did not share the information with Thomas about the women found slain in the ice cream shop, and Thomas didn't ask. But guessing that the police were on scene responding to some type of criminal activity, Thomas stuck around longer and later approached another officer to share some observations he'd made that evening. He mentioned that he'd seen two men, one white, one black, running from the direction of the shopping center as he was in the phone booth. The black man appeared to have something in his hand, which may have been a piece of pipe, he said. Thomas also recalled seeing a dog running in the area, quote, waving a pair of bloody pants. The officer reported this to the investigator, Davy Bocock, who later said he noted the statement as suspicious, as if the witness was trying to create an alibi and direct the investigator's attention somewhere else. By the next day, the double homicide was front-page news. Soon, the news spread to other media outlets, and by that weekend, the ice cream shop murders became national news. Even so, investigators soon ran out of leads, and the case quickly went cold. Families of the victims soon became frustrated at the lack of progress by police to catch their loved one's killer. Carol Smoots, Connie's twin brother, was devastated by his sister's murder and pressed investigators for answers. For three months, he hounded Sergeant Bocock for updates. When the case appeared to be stalled, Smoots began calling and dropping in to see the investigator to offer suggestions. Had they searched the area around the shopping center for the murder weapon? Did they check the drains near the store for shells? Were all the employees that highest questioned to see if they could recall anything useful? These all seemed like fairly routine tasks the investigator should have completed at the initial stages of the investigation, but according to Smoots, most of the time, Bocock admitted he had not done these things and would, quote, look into it. Smoots felt the police were dragging their feet, and it was his opinion that Bocock was not doing all he could to bring Connie's killer to justice. His parents agreed. Laverne Smoots would later recall that the investigator had not once contacted her to ask any questions about her daughter, which she thought was very odd. Wouldn't he want to know if she had problems with anyone in town, or had ever mentioned feeling uneasy about a certain customer? But it appears that Bocock simply marked the crime as a robbery gone wrong, and didn't undertake a thorough investigation after coming to this conclusion. Why he did this, and if so, remained a mystery and of great frustration to the families. Others thought there must be more to this terrible tragedy. Who would commit such a brutal crime for barely $100? Why would a robber shoot two defenseless young women for such a paltry amount? As talk of the unsolved crime continued to buzz through town, criticism of Staunton's police department grew. Yet unknown to the public was the fact that police did have someone they were questioning about the case. William Gus Thomas the man in the phone booth on the night of the murders. He was brought in twice for questioning in the days following the murders. They called him back for another interview at the end of the month, and this time they recorded his statements. Each time Thomas had been asked to return to answer more questions, he'd done so willingly, even eagerly. He made long, rambling statements not only about his observations during the night in question, but also about his life, his job, and his responsibilities as a married man. He told investigators he was working three jobs and was concerned that he might not be rehired for the next school term. He gave information about his education, his family, and anything else he could think of. He seemed to revel in the attention paid to him by the police. In fact, at one point, Thomas expressed how much he enjoyed talking with them and said he hoped he was being helpful to their case. But during the last interview, Thomas was asked more pointed questions about the men he'd said he'd witnessed running near the shopping center the night of the murder and about the dog with the bloody pants and also about a conversation he claimed to have with a blonde-haired boy early on the morning after the murders. He'd shared this information with officers in his first interview later that same day. He was now grilled by investigators about the details since they didn't believe he was telling them the truth. Thomas then admitted that he'd made up these stories. He said he found himself spinning these yarns because he was, quote, thrilled when police began asking him questions, and he learned they were looking to him for help in solving a murder case. I had been at a loss for excitement, Thomas is heard to say on the taped interview. It was reported by others that Gus Thomas was going around town hinting that he had somehow been involved in the murders at a high's ice cream store. Most dismissed these statements by the young teacher, saying they, quote, thought he sounded crazy, end quote. With only Thomas's false statements to police and town gossip to work with, Commonwealth Attorney T. Claybrook Elder nevertheless filed charges that fall against the schoolteacher for one count of first-degree murder in the slaying of Constance Smoots Hevner. The charge for Carolyn Hevner-Perry's murder was not filed at that time. This, most likely, was a strategic move by the state in the event they did not win a guilty verdict for the first charge of murder. If Thomas walked on that charge, there would still be another chance to try him for the second murder at a later date, should more evidence come to light. William W. Thomas Jr. was arrested on October 16th, 1967, six months after the murders were committed. His parents used their real estate holdings as collateral to pay the $15,000 bond, and Thomas was released the same day. He would remain free while awaiting trial. William Gus Thomas's trial took place in March of 1968. The prosecution's case was very weak. They called several witnesses who testified that Thomas had confessed to killing the girls, but these had all taken place in private conversations that could not be corroborated. Another woman came forward to say that she'd seen a man sitting in the ice cream shop late that evening. But although she'd made a statement to police saying she believed it was Thomas, under oath she admitted that she had only seen the man from behind. The physical description she'd given did not match Thomas. Thomas's defense attorney put others on the stand who had visited the shopping center or been in the area on the night of the murders. None had seen a man or any other customers in the shop as late as the prosecution witness had stated. The defense's case showed that no one could put Thomas at the scene of the crime, nor had the murder weapon been found. They also knocked down the prosecution's theory that Thomas's motivation for allegedly committing the crime was robbery. They called his parents, wife, and others, who testified that, far from being desperate for a couple hundred dollars, Thomas and his wife were both employed, and he also received proceeds from his family farm. His wife, Sally, testified that they had over $7,000 in the bank at the time of the murders, or over $50,000 in today's dollars. She also testified that her husband had asked her if she wanted to make the trip to the phone booth with him that evening, but she had declined. She said Thomas returned home only 20 or 30 minutes later and it seemed perfectly calm and quote normal. It was only the next morning, upon reading about the murders in the paper, that her husband mentioned having briefly spoken to the police, Sally Thomas testified. The trial wrapped up in less than a week, and after a three-hour deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. After a jury acquitted the only suspect in the murders of Connie Hevner and Carolyn Perry, the case of the ice cream shop murders languished for decades. Roy Hartless, a lifelong resident of Staunton, was just 14 years old when the murders rocked his hometown. He knew Connie Hevner peripherally, delivering her family's paper each morning while working his paper route as a boy. Perhaps it was this crime that inspired Roy Hartless to become a police officer, or maybe it had always been his ambition. Either way. He joined the Staunton Police Department as a patrol officer in 1973, soon after graduating high school. The double homicide at Heise remained fixed in Heartless's memory over the years. Growing up in Staunton, he often saw the victim's family members around town and exchanged pleasantries. In 1988, after 15 years' experience on the police force, Heartless was assigned to the Criminal Investigation Unit. He began reviewing cold cases including the murder at High's Ice Cream in 1967. Leeds still came in about the case now and then over the years, and Heartless took it upon himself to follow up on each tip. He also took another look at William Gus Thomas, the one and only suspect who was acquitted of the crime. Heartless even flew to California to interview Thomas's now ex-wife. He thought if she had any information she hadn't shared with the police in 1967 when she and Thomas were still married, she may do so now. But Sally Thomas's recollection many years later remained consistent with what she had said on the stand at her husband's trial. Hartless concluded that Thomas was never a solid suspect for the crime. Hartless worked for over a dozen years with Davy Bocock, the lead investigator on the case. He would periodically ask Bocock questions about the murder investigation. But Bocock had long before pushed the unsolved case to the back of his mind, concluding it was a simple robbery that turned tragic. Sergeant Bocock retired from the police force in the mid-1980s. In the late 1990s, the Hefner family contacted the Staunton police to inquire whether the advancements in forensic science, such as DNA testing and ballistics analysis, might yield new clues in the case. The bullet casings found at the scene were now analyzed with improved techniques, but without a murder weapon, they did little to provide additional information. Hartless began speaking to the family members and became more determined to work to solve the case. He decided the only way to do so properly was to begin at square one. He had everything that had been compiled on the case pulled from the archives to review. He was surprised to find that the information collected was pretty scant for such a high-profile case, not to mention one with multiple victims. Hartless said files of most murder cases generally measured over three inches thick filled with interview reports, crime scene details, photos, maps, follow-up interviews, etc. But the case file on the Heis murders only measured about a half-inch thick, with one two-page report submitted by Sergeant Bocock. There were reports of the interviews police had conducted with Gus Thomas, and the witness who found the bodies. There were also a few reports from others who'd come forward later on, either those who'd been in the ice cream shop sometime before the murders, or others who'd been in the area that evening. Other than that, there was little additional information. Hartless thought about what he would have done if he'd been assigned the case in 1967. First of all, he reviewed the scene of the crime. By this time, High's ice cream had been bought and sold several times before being franchised in the late 1980s. Soon afterward, many of the shops closed due to the recession and competition from a new, more hip ice cream franchise, Ben & Jerry's. Hartless went back to the Hevner family who'd run the Staunton store in the 1960s when their daughter and daughter-in-law were killed. He realized two things right away. Number one, almost everyone who worked at the shop at that time was related to the Hevners by blood or marriage. And number two, almost none of them had been interviewed after the murders. When he contacted them to gather details about what they remembered from that time, most of the employees and family members told him it was the first time they'd ever been interviewed about the case. Heartless was stunned. Not talking to witnesses who knew the victims was a fundamental error in investigating a homicide, Heartless knew. Now speaking to the victims' co-workers, even so many years later, provided new information and a possible clue. Heartless learned that Connie Hebner was not originally scheduled to work that night. She had filled in for a coworker who was unable to work their shift but who that coworker was had long been forgotten. The Hefners had not kept employee records from that time. Hartless thought this information might yield a clue, but without the name of the missing employee, the investigation stalled once more. Still, he couldn't put it out of his mind and continued to follow up on even minor leads for the rest of his career with the Staunton PD. In 2005, Hartless retired from the police department Instead of spending his free time relaxing or taking up a new hobby, Heartless couldn't seem to get police work out of his blood, so he went into private investigation. As a PI, he continued to work on the Heise case pro bono. The following year, in 2006, Dave Bocock, who'd retired from the police department two decades earlier, died of natural causes at the age of 76. It appeared that the case would remain unsolved, until a chance encounter at a yard sale of all places began a chain of events that would crack the cold case wide open. Another person who had become obsessed with the case was a distant cousin of the two murdered women. Lowell Sheets was related to Connie Hevner by blood, and by extension, Carolyn Perry, her sister-in-law. Sheets was well known around town as someone who was still seeking leads in the unsolved murders, even into the 2000s. Sheets was also a local business owner. He owned and operated a successful appliance sales and repair shop, s and Appliances. In 2008, Sheets' daughter-in-law held a yard sale at her home in Staunton. His son's work truck, with the s and logo painted on its side, was parked in the driveway that weekend. A woman from the nearby town of Verona had stopped at the yard sale and noticed the truck. She was also aware that the owner of the appliance business was a relative of Connie Hevner. She approached Sheets' daughter-in-law to inquire how she might get in touch with her father. She said she had some information he might be interested in about the case. Her information was passed along to Sheets, who soon afterward got in touch with her. The woman's name was Joyce Bradshaw. She was 74 years old and retired. But in 1967, she was working at Western State Hospital in Staunton. Okay, a quick aside about Western State. When it first opened in 1828, it was called Western State Lunatic Asylum. Even though the name was changed to the more inviting Western State Hospital in 1894, it continued to have a long history of warehousing patients in deplorable conditions. Many Western State patients were mentally or physically impaired, suffered from mental illness, or were women who had been institutionalized by parents or their spouses, or anything ranging from depression to, quote, sexual promiscuity. Patients were placed in overcrowded conditions and subjected to inhumane treatments. They were locked in cells or placed in straitjackets and other restraints. Forced sterilizations took place after the Eugenical Sterilization Act was passed in Virginia in 1924. This practice did not end until the law was finally repealed in the 1970s. Electroshock therapy and lobotomies were also part of the therapies that patients were subjected to at Western State. Western State Hospital moved into new modern facilities in the 1970s. Its original buildings were then repurposed as the Staunton Correctional Center, a medium-security men's prison. The prison closed in 2003, and the campus remained empty for several years until the state gave the property to the Staunton Industrial Authority. It is now a condominium community called the Villages. With that history, there has to be a few spirits lurking around those condos, don't you think? But I digress. Back to Joyce Bradshaw. Joyce told Lowell Sheets that one of her young aides at Western State Hospital in 1967 was a 19-year-old named Sharon Diane Crawford, who went by her middle name, Diane. Diane was born and raised in Staunton. After high school, she attended classes at Virginia Western Community College. In the spring of 1967, Diane was hired as a nurse's aide at Western State. Joyce had been her supervisor. Joyce Bradshaw had total recall of the events that took place 40 years earlier in April of 1967. She said this was because the memories from that time had shaken her so much, she could never get them out of her mind. On April 1, 1967, 10 days before the murders at High's Ice Cream, Diane Crawford had called her and invited her to join her for dinner at a popular drive-in diner called Kenny Burger. Joyce was surprised at the invitation as she and Diane had never socialized outside of work before. But she thought Diane was nice enough, so she accepted. While they were sitting in Diane's car eating hamburgers, Diane began talking about herself. She told Joyce she had problems at home with her parents. Joyce listened and empathized with the young girl. Then Diane told Joyce to open up the car's glove compartment saying there was something in there she wanted to show her. When Joyce opened it, she saw a 25 caliber handgun inside. She looked at Diane speechless. Diane said she'd purchased the gun at the Montgomery Ward's department store downtown. Calling the weapon her baby, Diane told Joyce it was loaded with two bullets. One's for my stepfather, Diane said. He had sexually abused her as a teen, she continued. She then said, the other bullets for the Hevner girl who lives on Grubert Street. Joyce said she'd been stunned into shocked silence. After listening to Joyce's story, Lowell Sheets contacted Roy Hartless. Hartless met with Joyce, and she gave a detailed account of her conversation with Diane Crawford to the private investigator. Hartless, at first, was skeptical. He asked her why hadn't she come forward in 1967. Joyce gave him a hard stare and said, I did! The day after the Hebner girl and her sister-in-law were killed, and I read about it in the paper, I went and spoke with the investigator, Dave Bocock. Sergeant Dave Bocock was in charge of criminal investigations for the Staunton PD for years. Hartless himself had worked with Sergeant Bocock for over a dozen years. So, Hartless was very surprised to hear that his sergeant had been given this information by Joyce Bradshaw in 1967, and yet there was no mention of it in the case file. And there was more. Joyce claimed that when she reported Diane's threat against Connie Hevner to Bocock, he responded by saying, Oh yes, I know her. She used to come up to my farm to shoot target practice. He seemed unconcerned, Joyce said, as if it was all a misunderstanding or something that could be easily explained. He told Joyce he'd look into it and get back to her. A few days later, Heartless did show up at the hospital to speak to Joyce. Bocock told her he'd cleared Diane as a suspect. Diane had taken a polygraph test and passed, Bocock said. Furthermore, the bullets used in the crime did not match Diane's gun, he told Joyce. Joyce remembered that before leaving, Bocock had said pointedly to her, Diane's a crack shot. Joyce took this as a threat. But, she told Heartless, she didn't believe what the sergeant said about Diane being cleared in the investigation. As soon as I heard about the murders, Joyce told the PI, I knew it was Diane. Joyce may have been right about Diane being a potential threat, because a couple of days after her visit from the sergeant, Diane phoned Joyce once more with an invitation. She asked her to go for a drive to Lone Fountain, a tiny rural town located about 15 miles west of Staunton. Joyce declined, saying she was busy. Diane became hostile. She told Joyce she, quote, better keep her mouth shut. Joyce became nervous. Had Bocock told Diane what she said, she wondered? Or had Diane just suspected it when she was called in by the officer to answer questions? Joyce decided to play dumb. Keep my mouth shut about what, she asked. Diane answered, you know what about. I was scared, Joyce now told Heartless 41 years later. I just wanted to put it out of my mind. But over the years, Joyce continued to reflect on what she knew. She told Heartless she had later also contacted other law enforcement agencies with this information, making reports about the threat to the Virginia State Police and the Nelson County Sheriff's Department. No one had taken her very seriously, Joyce claimed. Representatives from these agencies were asked about these reports by Joyce. They both responded that after so many years, they could neither confirm nor deny the validity of her claim. Hartless combed through Bocock's notes in the case file and found a statement regarding Diane's polygraph test. The note said it had been ordered for elimination purposes. But he found no follow-up reports and there was no information about the results of the polygraph. Hartless requested a transcript, but was unable to obtain one he now wondered what the connection between Bocock and Diane Crawford, a possible suspect, could mean. At the very least, he found it inappropriate that the sergeant had handled the investigation of a suspect who he, by his own admission, had a prior relationship to, even if it was only as target practice buddies. And Heartless was able to find out another fact. Diane Crawford had been employed at High's Ice Cream in 1967 and may have been the employee who Connie Hevner had filled in for on that fateful night of April 11th. Heartless now set out to track down Diane Crawford. Sharon Diane Crawford was born on August 21st, 1948. Her mother's name was Delphia Bradshaw, who was known by the nickname Red. Red married Emmett Bradshaw when Diane was a young girl. Joyce had described Diane as, quote, kind of a tomboy even up until her teen years. Quote, if you saw her far away, you probably thought she was a boy, Joyce recalled years later. She wore her hair real short. She always wore pants. She hunched her shoulders like a football player, end quote. Joyce said Diane was a good worker and friendly to most, if a bit socially awkward. She didn't appear to have a group of close friends like most girls her age, she recalled. Diane was employed part-time at High's Ice Cream, but in late March, she'd been hired to work as a nurse's aide at Western State Hospital. She worked both jobs for a while, but began working more shifts at the hospital that spring. At Highs, she had worked with both Connie Hevner and Carolyn Perry. Heartless also learned that a few months after the murders, Diane left both jobs and moved to Durham, North Carolina. She lived there from 1967 to 1986. Diane married and had two children, but 20 years later, after her marriage ended, she'd returned to Staunton. She now went by the name Diane Crawford Smith. It was now August of 2008. 41 years had passed since the two women were gunned down in the ice cream shop. Roy Hartless was determined to speak with Diane Smith. He discovered that, now 60 years old, Diane was very ill and residing in a Staunton assisted living facility. He obtained permission to pay her a visit. Hartless, no longer an active duty police officer, brought along Wayne Snodgrass to represent the Staunton PD for the interview. Snodgrass had been his partner on the police force for 26 years and was still on active duty. The two men arrived to speak to Diane on August 28, 2008. They entered her room to find a very ill woman. Diane was dying of kidney failure. She was weak but completely lucid and willing to answer their questions. Diane first confirmed that, yes, she had been working part-time at High's in 1967. She also confirmed that she knew both the victims, and more importantly, that she was the employee that Connie and Carolyn had covered for that night. Diane explained that she had begun working at the hospital, so she was unable to work that shift. Hardless explained his visit by telling Diane that the girls' families had sent him, quote, for closure. Good, Diane replied. I need closure, too. She answered Hartless's question about taking the polygraph test and told him more about her time after leaving Staunton. She'd been married and had a family, but she now had a female partner who she'd been living with for several years. They talked for about an hour, and Hartless decided to end the conversation by putting his cards on the table. What would you say, Diane, he asked her, if I told you someone believes you may have shot these girls? Diane's pallor became even more pale, and her mouth hung open. Heartless saw this as a tell. She had been completely calm and relaxed throughout the interview until he asked that question. Now she became defensive and hostile, and the conversation came to an abrupt close. Heartless and Snodgrass left soon afterward. When they got in the car, Snodgrass turned to his former partner. She killed those girls, he said. Heartless believed he was right. The investigators took the new information and their notes from the interview with Diane Crawford-Smith to the head of the Criminal Investigations Unit for the Staunton PD. Heartless expected Staunton investigators to move the case forward by conducting a formal interview with Diane themselves and share the information with the prosecutor's office. But days passed and then weeks and nothing happened. No charges were filed and there were no updates on the case reported in the media. Then Heartless learned that Wayne Snodgrass had been taken off the case by the chief of police. Not only that, but the chief also forbid the officer from speaking with Heartless about the case. When he was asked about this decision, Chief Jim Williams explained that Officer Snodgrass had been reassigned to patrol duty a couple of years earlier. Williams said he was just making sure the case was being handled by officers in the Criminal Investigations Unit. And yet, there was still no movement in the case. On November 19th, Three months after his visit to Diane, Hartless decided to pay a visit to the Commonwealth Attorney's Office to find out when they were planning their next move. But he was in for another surprise when he spoke to Prosecutor Ray Robertson. Robertson told him he had not been informed of the new information on the case by the police department. The private investigator now filled Robertson in about Diane Crawford Smith. Robertson then spoke with Chief Jim Williams, asking him for the updates in the investigation. Williams explained that he was waiting to brief the prosecutor's office after they completed gathering the information and buttoned down the details of the investigation. The attorney then met with the Hefner and Perry families to update them on the 40-year-old case. He said the police were close to making an arrest. They then learned that Diane Crawford, a former employee of High's, had been identified as a very good suspect back in August. Why had it taken until November for the police and the attorney's office to take action, they wanted to know? They were eager for investigators to move quickly to interview Diane when they were told she was gravely ill. They didn't want any more delays if it meant they could finally get answers and see justice served. Lowell Sheets, whose attention to the case had set the wheels in motion after four decades, accused the police of purposely letting the clock run out. Because the suspect was dying, Sheets said, quote, they certainly had to be thinking their interests would be better served if she would go out quietly rather than make all of this public he said, referring to what he considered the less-than-thorough investigation of the case. Connie Hevner's brother, Carol Smoots, accused the Staunton PD of dragging its feet, quote, just as it had in 1967. If it had been their family member that died, they would have done a lot more then. And if they really wanted justice, they would have arrested that woman, he fumed to reporters. Chief Williams defended his department's actions, stating, we want to be just, but we also want to be correct. But the renewed media attention finally spurred law enforcement into action. Nine days later, on November 28, 2008, Staunton PD investigators visited Diane Crawford Smith at her nursing home. She was in the last stages of kidney failure and very weak, but spoke clearly and in detail about the events of 1967. The interview was recorded and a transcript made of the conversation. In it, Diane Crawford Smith confessed to the double homicide of her co-workers, Constance Smoots-Hevner and Carolyn Hevner-Perry, 41 years earlier. Diane admitted she'd been angry with Connie Hevner, who she claimed, quote, had been taunting and teasing me about my lifestyle, end quote. Diane told investigators that she was a lesbian, although at the time of the murder, she said, she'd not yet had any sexual relationships, nor had she ever told anyone she was gay. How then did the girls know, she was asked, quote, How do kids find out about anything? It was just really unusual back then, Diane replied. There must have been rumors, or maybe they just suspected, she said, because the teasing had, quote, gone on for a while. Diane said she was scheduled to work the closing shift at High's on April 11th, but the day before, quote, I went into the store to tell the girls I couldn't work the next day. She knew Connie would be the one to cover her shift, she said. Diane showed up at the ice cream shop the next night around 10.30 p.m., just minutes before it was set to close. She took the 25 caliber pistol with her. Diane claimed she was just going to confront the girls about the teasing, but one thing led to another, she said. She and Connie got into a physical confrontation first, pushing and shoving. Investigators knew this account was consistent with the crime scene. There was evidence of a struggle, and Connie had bruises on her body inconsistent with injuries she would have sustained by simply falling after being shot. This detail had never been made public. The confrontation with Connie turned into a shoving match between all three women. Diane pulled out the gun. She shot at Carolyn Perry first, striking her from about a foot away, according to the autopsy report. As Carolyn fell to the floor, Connie rushed to help her. As she bent over her sister in law's body, Diane came up behind her, and positioning the gun just a couple of inches from her head, shot Connie behind her left ear. The bullet had exited from the left side of her neck, Diane said. This detail was also consistent with Connie's injuries. Connie fell over Carolyn's body and bled out quickly. I was just pushed so far, Diane said, so I shot her, and that was it. Diane then fled from the shop through the back door. Before leaving, she decided to take some of the cash that was sitting on the desk in the back room to make it look like a robbery. After that, she drove around for a while, quote, aimlessly, scared, end quote. She was sure the police would knock on her door, but it never happened. She also told investigators that she'd continued working part-time at High's for several more weeks. During this time, she met the man she would soon marry. She even attended Connie Hevner's funeral, Diane said, She could see a scar on Connie's neck as she lay in her casket. This was where the bullet had exited her body, Diane knew. That shook her up so much, she said, that she checked herself into King's daughter's hospital after the funeral. Investigators asked if she had been aware that another man was accused and tried for the murders. Yes, Diane said. She had followed the arrest of Gus Thomas and his trial in the newspapers. Still, she hadn't felt compelled to come forward to take responsibility. Instead, by the end of that year, she had moved to North Carolina with her new husband. She stayed away from Staunton for many years and worked as a licensed professional nurse. She had even been employed in a correctional facility for a time. Her marriage ended, and in 1986, she moved back to Staunton. She entered into a relationship with a woman named Sharon Paxton, who was also from Staunton. They had been living together in a committed relationship for several years. Her two daughters had married— and Diane was the grandmother of four and also had one great-grandchild. Her mother, Delphia Bradshaw, now in her 80s, still lived in the area. Her stepfather, Emmett, had died over two decades earlier. Diane told investigators that her stepfather had sexually abused her because, quote, he disapproved of my sexuality, end quote. Did that cause her to be pushed over the edge, they asked? I don't know, Diane replied icily. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze it. Investigators described Diane's demeanor during her confession as mainly calm and matter-of-fact. She did express some remorse in her statement, but never became emotional or cried. As for the pain she had caused so many by her actions, Diane said that she hoped her confession would, quote, bring them closure, end quote. On December 10th, Chief Williams and Commonwealth Attorney Ray Robertson held a press conference announcing the arrest of Diane Crawford Smith for the murders of Connie Hevner and Carolyn Perry. She would formally be charged with two counts of first-degree murder soon. They provided reporters with a copy of the mugshot of the dying woman taken in her hospital bed. When asked about the motive for the crime, they declined to give specifics at that time, but said the details would all be revealed at trial. They did say, however, that the motive was not robbery. They also shared that Diane Smith was terminally ill. There's some concern she may not survive the weekend, Robertson said. But Diane did survive the weekend, and for several more weeks. She even gave one more interview to investigators on December 30th. They returned to question her in hopes of retrieving the murder weapon. Diane began by making it clear that she alone was responsible for the murders. Then she dropped another bombshell. A few days after the murders, Diane was feeling frantic and reached out to someone for advice. The name of her friend was Sergeant Davey Bocock, head of criminal investigations for the Staunton PD. She said she and Bocock were, quote, pretty good friends, but would only say that they had become acquainted through mutual friends. It was Bocock who had taught her how to shoot a gun, and they sometimes shot at targets, quote, pictures of deers and things attached to hay bales at his farm, Diane told them. She said she had asked Bocock to meet her in a parking lot just a day or so after the murders. It was there that she handed him the gun and told him, I shot the girls. After Staunton investigators picked up their jaws from the floor, I assume, they asked her, what was his response? Diane's energy was extremely compromised by her illness by this time, and sometimes she seemed to become confused when asked for details. She claimed the sergeant had said, It was sort of dangerous to have a gun and said I could hurt someone, end quote. Uh, what? Hurt someone? She'd already confessed to a double murder. Then, she said, Bocock offered to fix it for her. He said he'd take the gun, put it in a locked box, and dig a hole somewhere on his farm and bury it. Diane agreed this would be the best thing to do. She assumed he'd buried it, like he said, on his farm at Barterbrook Road. The last time she saw the gun was when she handed it to Bocock in the parking lot, Diane claimed. Davy Bocock was the only person she'd ever told about killing the girls, she said. She'd never told her children, her ex-husband, her current partner, or anyone else. Diane's court appearance to enter a plea for the two murder charges was set for January 6, 2009. But by that time, she had lapsed into a coma. She died a week later, on January 19, at the age of 61. Her funeral service was held a few days later at the Henry Funeral Home in Staunton. Neither Diane's children or partner would ever agree to speak to the press. William Gus Thomas had been under suspicion for murders he did not commit for over 40 years, even though he was acquitted of one of them in 1968. Being accused of the ice cream shop murders, had made him a pariah in his hometown. Schools would no longer hire him as a teacher and he instead began working in the construction trade. He and his wife Sally eventually divorced and she moved to California. On December 30, 2008, the same day Diane made her last confession, Raymond Robertson announced that the attorney's office had cleared Thomas of the second murder indictment that was still pending. As for comment by reporters, Gus Thomas said that living under suspicion for the last 40 years, quote, had been tough, but my loss is not comparable to what happened to those families, end quote. Roy Hartless, who'd spent so much of his life and career trying to solve the double homicide, only to discover that Staunton's PD's lead investigator may have had the information all along, was now determined to find out why Bocock may have helped protect the killer. The prosecutor was also determined to get some answers. If he had anything to do with covering this thing up, Ray Robertson said in another press conference, we're hell-bent on finding out what it was and why. Rumors began around town regarding the nature of the relationship between Bocock and Diane Smith. Were they romantically involved? Was Bocock in love with the teen? A February 1, 2009 article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch mentioned a possible romantic triangle involving Bocock who some in town said had a reputation as a ladies' man in his younger days. Dr. Bruce Arrigo, a professor of criminal justice at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and an authority on the psychology of police corruption, was asked to weigh in for an article published in The Hook. It was his opinion that, quote, it takes a special sort of relationship for a cop to cover up someone else's crime. It would have to be the kind of relationship with a deep and compelling history, something like a marriage or a parent-child relationship, end quote. The idea of this possibility took hold after Diane's obituary ran in the local paper. Sharon Diane Crawford Smith, 60, Staunton, died Monday, January 19, 2009. She was born August 21, 1948, in Staunton, the daughter of Delphia Red Crawford Bradshaw. In addition to her mother... Family members include a longtime friend and cherished companion, Sharon Paxton of Staunton, two daughters, Crystal Shercliffe and her husband, Tracy, of Staunton, and the eldest daughter resides out of the area. A sister and brother-in-law, Joan and Fred Gilmer of Staunton, four grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. There was no mention of Diane's biological father. Now some wondered, was Davey Bocock Diane's father? Ray Robertson told reporters in April of 2009, that after Diane died, someone close to her, whom he would not name, had shared the following information with him. Bocock would have been eighteen years old when Diane was born, and Diane's mother had lived on Frontier Drive at that time, which was located just around the corner from the Bocock family farm on Barterbrook Road. The attorney decided to continue the investigation into the possible cover up and asked the judge for permission to exhume Bocock's body in order to collect DNA. But they hit another brick wall. Wouldn't you know it, Robertson said exasperated, that son of a bitch had himself cremated. Bocock's children were petitioned to volunteer DNA samples, but they declined the request. I can't charge a dead man with the crime, Robertson explained, so there's no way to compel any of his children to submit DNA. Robertson also attempted to speak to Diane's mother, Red Bradshaw, but she hung up on him. Several reporters also contacted Diane's mother, who was now 85 years old when finally spoke with her briefly by phone. About her daughter, Red Bradshaw said, she's been accused of a lot, but I have nothing to say. Before she had time to hang up, the reporter asked her if Davy Bocock was Diane's father. Red answered, he wasn't her father. That's my business who her father is, but he wasn't her father. Still, questions remain. The mystery may someday be solved, if, in the future, one of Bocock's grandchildren or great-grandchildren or another distant relative decides to submit their DNA for testing, just out of curiosity. Connie's mother responded to Diane Smith's claims that her daughter had been murdered because she teased her about being gay. She said she didn't believe her. My daughter was not the kind to tease people because they were different, Laverne Smoots, now Laverne Sowers, told reporters in 2009. She said that neither she nor Connie's brother would feel satisfied until they knew why it took 40 years for police to provide any answers. After Diane Smith's confession that the crime was allegedly covered up, Carol Smoots turned his anger on Bocock. For 42 years, we went through all kinds of pain and suffering because we didn't know. I have no sympathy for him or his family, he told Lindsay Barnes in a 2009 article for The Hook. Carolyn Perry's husband, Danny Perry, said he was glad to finally know the identity of his wife's killer. He said he and his daughter, Kim, who was just two when her mother was murdered, will finally be able to close the book on this selfish, unnecessary tragedy, end quote. As to the rest of it, Perry said, we'll just have to wait and see down the road the real why and if there was a cover-up. A search was conducted of Bocock's property in an attempt to find the murder weapon. Metal detectors were used to search for the gun, but nothing was turned up. Another gun that a local woman said had been given to her husband by Bocock before his death was turned over to the police. Ballistics tests were conducted, but it was not a match to the murder weapon. In 2010, William Gus Thomas sued the city of Staunton, alleging that he'd been framed by the police in 1967. His lawsuit stated that Sergeant Dave Bocock knew who the real killer was the day after the murders and helped cover up the crime. Thomas, who was representing himself in the matter, also included as yet unfounded rumors in the suit, claiming that Bocock was, quote, intimately involved with Diane Smith and may have fathered a child or children with her and had helped her hide the murder weapon. He was asking for 200 million dollars in damages from the town of Staunton and another 5 million from six different individuals whose names were not revealed to the public, bringing the total of the lawsuit to 230 million. An attorney representing the city said the suit was without merit. He said a search of court records did not back up Thomas's claim that an indictment against him had remained open for the past 40 years, a federal judge threw out Thomas's lawsuit. Thomas then filed an appeal. But that, too, was rejected. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Let me know your thoughts about this case. You can interact with me and other listeners of the podcast on the Facebook group. I'll also be doing a series wrap-up for Patreon members, where I'll give a few more details I left out of the Deathbed Confessions episodes. One of the things I'll be discussing is the strange statements made to the police by witness Gus Thomas, which led to him being falsely accused of murder. I have more information about what he said and why he may have inserted himself into this case. Also, I'll share my theories about why Diane may have targeted Connie Hebner in the first place and what evidence there is that Sergeant Bocock actually helped cover up the crime. You can gain access to that extra episode this month if you become a Patreon member just go to patreon.com slash crime to pick your perks by choosing a tier level. They start at just $2 a month, and all members have access to early release episodes and ad-free episodes. Don't forget to get your tickets to CrimeCon UK to join me in London on September 25th and 26th. That's less than two months away. Go to crimecon.co.uk to find out more. Save 10% on your registration by using my discount code onceupon 21 And I'll see you in London. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Original music and final sound mix by Aaron Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another.